So we, um, if you think about in the beginning, when God reached the climax of creation, uh, he made this statement, uh, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's Genesis 1.26. So definitely being created in the image of God has got something to do with uh, doing God's work, subduing the earth on his behalf. Um, but being created in the image of God has also got to do with being like him, being a social being like him. Listen to that, these words. Let us make man in our image. Uh, God has existed for all eternity as a trinity, three persons in the one God. He is by very nature eternally uh, social. And so it makes sense when he made creatures uh, in his image that he made us uh, to be like him, a social being, and he made them male and female in his image, and together he created them. Do you hear the language there? <clears throat> God created us for a relationship with him and a relationship with one another. That is at the core of what it means to be human. Uh, an article in Medical News Today states the following, a large body of research shows that solitary confinement causes adverse psychological effects and increases the risk of serious harm to individuals who experience it. It's long been uh, used as a form of torture and discipline. We know that. According to an article in the Journal of American Academy of Psychiatry and Law, isolation can be as distressing as physical torture. Human beings require social contact. Over time, the stress of being isolated can cause a range of mental health problems, according to Dr. Shannon Shalev, who authored a source book on solitary confinement in 2008. These problems may include anxiety, stress, depression, hopelessness, anger, irritability, hostility, panic attacks, problems with attention, concentration, and memory, hallucinations that affect all the senses, paranoia, poor impulse control, outbursts of anger, psychosis, fear of death, self-harm, or suicide. Research indicates that both living alone and feelings of loneliness are strongly associated with suicide attempts and suicide, uh, uh, suicide attempts. So we were created for community, for relationship with God and for one another. That's the core of what it means to be human and what we were created for. And immediately after the fall, that's what we find being disrupted. Our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. We find Adam and Eve hiding from uh, one another, covering themselves, hiding from each other, blaming each other. It didn't take long for that corruption to enter into the first siblings, Cain killing Abel. And we saw in Romans chapter 1 how, as it describes the spread of sin and the pervasiveness of sin, it describes it in terms of all the social evils, all how this affects our um, ability to relate to one another. Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
And he goes on in, the, in Romans to present God's solution in Jesus Christ, the gospel, his plan of redemption. And God's plan of redemption uh, includes dealing with the core of the problem, which is sin, which would then allow us to be reconciled with God and reconciled with each other. And so Romans 1 to 8 looks at salvation from the perspective of, of the individual, the individual being reconciled with God. And Romans 9 to 11 looks at the salvation of people groups, people in, uh, in God's plan of redemption, people groups or people in their social, cultural, national identities are being drawn back to Him through the gospel. The gospel addresses both facets of sin as it affects our relationship with God and as it affects our relationship uh, with one another. And so when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to Him. We are reconciled to our Creator, to God, to again be able to enjoy a personal relationship with God. But at that same time, we are also placed into a new body, a new community of faith called the church. And we are made members of this body and called to live reconciled relationships within this body, to live out this community of faith in the church. And last week we saw one of the key ways that we resist the pressure of, the, of this age and be renewed in our minds as being renewed in our social identity. We need to resist the, the pressure towards individualism and isolation, isolationism. Or to put it more simply, to resist the pressure towards selfish, self-centered living and to embrace and live out our social identity as Christians. The gospel saves us for God. And it reconciles us to God and it reconciles to one another. And we have to see the power of the gospel at work in both dimensions. You must understand this. You must embrace this. This is part of your identity and the purpose of your salvation. Just to show you this before we turn to Romans, just have a look in Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment so that you can see this is not um, isolated to the letter to the, to the Romans. This is part of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That talks about our, our lostness, our deadness in sin, our separation from God. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even we would, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and you've been raised us with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? God reconciled us to Himself in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, and He prepared us for good works. The text goes on in verse 11 to explain another dimension of salvation. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, now it's talking about a group of people, you Gentiles who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made by the fle- uh, made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separate from Christ as a people alienated from the commonwealth of Israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world the gentile nations as groups cultures nationalities of people were separated from God verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one who's the both these different groups of people these these people groups Jews on the one hand God's chosen people and Gentiles all the other nations and groups of people who were in the old testament before the gospel came alienated from God separated from him Verse 14 he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both who these different groups of people both to God where in one body through the cross thereby killing their hostility not just with God but their hostility with one another he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you're no longer strangers and aliens but are fellow citizens do you see that you become a people citizens of a new kingdom fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of god you've become a new family a group of people the family of faith under god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit don't overlook the significance of that conclusion the gospel has changed the location of God's glory on earth the gospel has given a new place to see God's power God's goodness God's presence manifest visibly and tangibly and it's not no longer in the temple but among his people in the church do you get the significance of that If people want to see God in some tangible way, if they want to encounter God, if they want to know that God is real, then they can see him no longer at some sacred building in the holy of holies hidden behind curtains, but they see him as Christians live out their faith in the community of faith. As they see God's power and God God's goodness working amongst us. So there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It doesn't exist. You were saved for God and you were saved into community. And we saw last week how Paul urged us to think rightly, to resist this worldly age that we live in and to think rightly to renew our minds with gospel truth. And the first facet where our minds need to be renewed is in the area of our social identity. our mindset towards who we are as Christians and who God has placed us am- uh, uh, alongside of 
we, we must realize that God has made us interdependent. He saved us and made us part of one body and we are members one of another and we need one another. And now he's going to go on to show us what it looks like then to live in community. Once we've embraced that mindset that God has placed us into this new community of faith, now how do we live out that faith? How do we make that gospel truth a reality in our daily lives and relationships in community? So let's pick up on the text in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I'll read from verse 1 just so you can see this whole context. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God or in view of the gospel that he's been presenting to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We need to live out our faith in the gospel, in community. Take up our place by faith, knowing that the body needs us and we need the body. Now this is something of what it looks like in daily life. We'll pick up on verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'm going to stop there, because we're not going to get through this whole passage anyway, and you'll have forgotten what I've read by next week. This is one of the most comprehensive passages in all of the Bible, certainly in the New Testament, telling us what it looks like to live out our Christian faith in the context of the Christian community. This is giving nuts and bolts to what it means to worship God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, to love Him and to love neighbor as ourselves. Fifteen characteristics of Christian community. I don't think it's an exhaustive list, 
yeah, I think it's a representative list, but it's one of the most comprehensive lists of exactly what does it look like to take our place in this Christian community so that our whole life is a manifestation of God's glory. Uh, genuine love, holiness, brotherly affection, honor, spiritual fervor, joy, perseverance in trials, prayerfulness, practical care, hospitality, forgiveness, empathy, humility, harmony, love for enemies. This is what should characterize the Christian community. This is what should characterize your life. These characteristics need to be increasingly evident in the way you're living out your Christianity. So we'll take each one of them in turn. First one is genuine love. In verse 9 it says there, let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. Let there be love among you and let it be the genuine article. Not put on love, not fake love, uh, not pretense for love, not a substitute for love, not love that's being wrongly motivated by other things and other reasons. Flowing from the redeemed heart is a changed view of our brothers and sisters in Christ that should cause us to love them genuinely from the heart. 1 John 3, 14 to 18 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So our faith in Jesus Christ should motivate us to have a genuine love for those whom he loves. And that genuine love needs to be practical. It needs to be sacrificial. How do we know what love is? He laid down his life for the brethren. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. There's nothing new to this commandment. Deuteronomy tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the, the, what's new in this commandment is not to love. It's who we are to love. The community of faith those whom Christ loves, and it's how we are to love, that you love one another even as I have loved you. How did Christ love us? He gave his life as a sacrifice for us. He's put a whole new level, uh, a whole new standard in play for what love looks like and who are we to love. Genuine love is the hallmark of true saving faith. It's the hallmark of every healthy Christian church. It should be the hallmark of everything we're doing together. Maybe you could see this as the heading for the entire section. Is this really the heading that summarizes genuine love is, is really the main point of this whole passage and what it goes on to explain is what genuine love will look like. 
bottom line is a Christian community should love each other sacrificially with right motives. If we get everything else wrong, we must get that right. Secondly, holiness. Holiness. He says there, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So if we love God, we will love the people that God loves. But if we love God, we'll love everything God loves. And we'll hate everything God hates. That's the point. If we have faith in God, we align ourselves with God in loving everyone and everything that He loves and hating everyone and everything that He hates. That's what the text is saying. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Christian love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling uh, that we have, that it leads us to sort of affirm everyone, don't criticize anyone, um, just you know, be happy-go-lucky with everyone and everything that goes on. Christian love is not just about enjoying each other. Don't mistake just having fun together with Christian love and Christian community. Christian love means we want what's best for one another. And that's defined by God and His Word. Christian mu uh, community should be characterized by our striving towards everything that is good and our striving against everything that is evil. Holiness. That's what should characterize Christian community, Christian fellowship. That's what we saw in Romans 12 verse 2. This world, is, this age is continually exerting a pressure on us towards ungodliness. We need to renew our minds uh, with the truth and pursue all that is good and pleasing and acceptable in that as, as it's revealed in God's will, God's word. That's the epitome of what true worship is. So the Christian community then are Christians who come alongside us and help us just do exactly that. They help us strive against sin and strive for righteousness. Uh, in the Christian community, we should be joining hands with other Christians that are trying to help us live holy lives, lives that are sanctified, separated unto God. They're helping us resist this pressure from this age, and they're pushing us forward, joining with us to strain forward to pursue all that is good but feels so difficult to attain to. That's what the Christian community should be characterized. It shouldn't be characterized by sin. As a church, we practice formal church discipline. And that means that if any of uh, our community make the decision to make a truce with sin and stop fighting it, if they decide to make friends out of sin and sinful desires, and pursue what is contrary to God's will, and they don't want to listen, and don't want to repent, and they don't want help, and they're not fighting anymore, we will come alongside them, and we will fight for them, and with them, and alongside them, because we love them. We'll come alongside them, and say, this is sin, and this is going to destroy you and others. You can't do this. You can't pursue this. You can't make a truce with this. This is wrong. Let me show you what God's Word says, and we'll do that because we love them, 
not because we think we're better than them, not because we're judging them, but because we know next week I could be there. I could be the one needing a, a brother to say, don't do it, don't go there. You're playing with fire. Avoid this. Are you aware that this is wrong? Much of church discipline, uh, before it comes to the formal stage where we bring it before you as a congregation, it should be taking place informally as we challenge one another and encourage one another to live holy lives. And we're all guilty of sin, some of it conscious, some of it without even knowing. But that's what should characterize our Christian fellowship, encouraging each other. Should you be watching those movies? Should you be listening to this music? Is that an acceptable way to talk? Can you write this person off? Shouldn't you be forgiving them? Can you be holding on to this bitterness? Can I pray for you that God will give you the strength to love this person? Right, the Christian life is difficult. And God has given us a Christian community who help us stay on the line of God's word and stay on the line in how we live according to God's word. Whenever people get into communities in the world, what predominates in those communities? Sin. Wherever you find people multiplying in cities, what multiplies? Sin. Sin destroys communities. It divides and destroys. Marriages and families in the world are broken by sin. And there is no remedy outside the gospel. Social welfare programs aren't going to help. Psychologists are not going to be able to help because only the gospel deals with the core of the problem, which is sin. And people are helpless to change apart from the gospel. But if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and renewed. Those are the first eight chapters of Romans. We've been, been made new creatures in Jesus Christ. And that renewal and that forgiveness and that gospel power needs to be seen in how we live transformed lives. And we need to help each other to do just that. Just turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's after Hebrews and after James. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do you see this, the similar themes to Romans? Renew your minds, set your, your thinking on the truth, don't be carried away by the, the lies and the ignorance of your past life. He says there, um, but as he who called you, verse 15, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in his last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See the same things? Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Holiness should characterize the Christian community. Help one another with that. We can't do that if we never confess our sins to one another. If we never let one another into our lives at the, at the level where we're really struggling. The Christian community can't be characterized by hypocrisy, by a fake kind of godliness where we all pretend to be okay. We can't be characterized by, you know, pointing our fingers at all the terrible sin that's happening on in the community out there and not acknowledging that that sin is coming into our own homes, our own minds, our own hearts, our own conversations, our own families. We can acknowledge that we struggle with sin and that sin sometimes gets the better of us. And we can ask for prayer and for help and for input and for counsel and for encouragement. And the Christian community is not there to look down on us because we struggle with something. We're not only there to criticize homosexuals and say this is wrong and it's sinful. We're there to realize that we might struggle with homosexual desires. That amongst us, those desires can also lay hold of our own hearts. And we need people who will come alongside and not judge us for having those desires, but come alongside us and fight those desires, help us resist them and walk in holiness. And that would be true of desires for uh, the same sex or desires for too many things or too much food, greed, idolatry, gluttony, sexual immorality. It doesn't matter what the problems are we struggle with. We're going to struggle with them all. And the Christian community is not a place where we need to come and pretend, but a place where we can come and confess and get help. It's not a place where we judge one another for struggling. It's a place where we help one another to win, to be victorious over these sins. Thirdly, brotherly affection. Brotherly affection, he says, Love one another, verse 10, with brotherly affection, if you go back to Romans 12. Be tenderly affectionate. This is the kind of love that occurs between parents and children and husbands and wives. It's the same kind of love that we should see, at least, characterized in the family. It speaks of warmth, it speaks of affection, of tenderness, of concern, of loyalty. You've heard the saying, blood is thicker than water, right? Christian community is thicker than blood. It's held together with the blood of Christ. Christian community is not just a partnership, it's not just a social club, it's not just a place where we engage in common activities or even a great mission. It's a place where we have tender, tender affections for one another. It's a family and I thought about what are the key characteristics of family. One of them is loyalty. Loyalty. Family has your back no matter what. They're loyal. It's a place where you can trust them to have your best interest at heart. 
that's what should characterize Christian community. We don't view ourselves completely independent. When you're in a family, your identity is wrapped up with these other people's identity and their well-being. You view yourself in community with them. There's acceptance. That's one of the wonderful things about family. They see you warts and all. They know everything about you, good and bad. You can't hide things from family. They know whether you're intelligent or not, whether you're patient or not, whether you have angry outbursts or not. And in family, they accept you anyway. They never like some of those characteristics of you, which they dislike, but they accept you anyway. They accept you warts and all. They accept you as you are. They know you as you are. You don't have to pretend in family. You can't pretend in family. You yourself. And in a healthy family, you get accepted that way. Christian community should be like that. We should know that we're different. And we've got foibles and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies. And, and as we come together, sometimes those are a bit frustrating and even irritating. And, and sometimes they're wonderful. But this is family. It's a place where you should find acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. People know you for who you are and they love you anyway. Affection. That's another thing that characterizes family is they invade your body space. Right? There, there isn't that same sense of body space with family. There, there's affection, there's hugging, there's closeness, there's touching without sensuality. It's not a sensual kind of touching and physicality and closeness. It's, it's void of that. But it, it has that. You sit close to family. You eat meals with family. You hug family. And the Christian community is intimate and close. We obviously need to be careful about the sensuality that can ruin it, about in, inappropriate physical touch and closeness. But we shouldn't be striving for distance and formality in the Christian community. There should be affection. There's people that live alone in this world, that aren't part of physical families, that are single, that are divorced, that are homeless. There's no one that can hug them. No one that can put an arm around them. No one that can touch them in an affirming way and say, we love you, we got your back. We care about you. No one who takes an interest in the struggles that they're having on a daily basis if they don't find those things in the Christian family called the church. Fourth, honor. Honor. These are the characteristics of Christian community. Outdo one another in showing honor. There in verse 10, it says, in ASV says, it says, give preference to one another in honor. It's translated slightly different ways, but we get the main idea. We are to honor one another, show honor to one another, which raised the question in my mind, what does that actually mean? Well, this phrase is used almost identically in Philippians chapter 2. So turn there for a moment, uh, keep your fingers here. I just want to show you what I think lies at the heart of this command to honor one another. After Ephesians, before Colossians, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3. Let's just read from um, verse 1, actually. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think the bottom line is, to honor others is to consider them more important than yourselves. Look, verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And verse 3, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So, so honoring another person basically means I attach the right price tag to them. I attach the correct God-ordained price tag to them. So the world devalues people. The world uses people for self, for selfish gain, for self-interest, for self-advancement. That's what characterizes community in the world. People are relegated. In this country, your life can be taken for the value of your cell phone. That's the extent to which people can be devalued. You're worth a few hundred bucks. And I'll end your life and not think anything of that. But there's so many versions of devaluing people in the world. And this command is to say, no, assign to other people the value that God has assigned to them. More important than yourselves. Give them the honor, the dignity, the worth, the value that they have in God's sight. Regard them rightly with God's way of thinking. Even as Jesus Christ, who considered his glory and comfort in heaven and decided that that was worth using and, and veiling as he became man and used it for our good, who was willing to go from everything to be made nothing in order to reconcile people to God, such was the value that Jesus Christ placed on humanity. Have that mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that same mindset that Jesus Christ demonstrated in leaving the glory of heaven to take on the glory of the cross because of the value of redeeming people. Let me paraphrase this for you. Don't live selfish, self-centered lives. Simple as that. Don't live selfish, self-centered lives. Let the gospel transform the way you live your life in regard to other people. We pursue comfort ahead of people. We pursue entertainment and hobbies and relaxation ahead of people. We will lie to people and manipulate people to get what we want out of them and what we want out of them is not them. We want to use them for something else. We'll value things ahead of people. We'll hurt people for the sake of things. We'll use people to get things. When you make a trade with someone, do you think, will this benefit them? 
what, are you trying to get the most out of that trade for yourself? These are all the ways that we are prone to be pressurized by this age to not think rightly about people, not associate the right value with them. And so we reduce our lives and we, uh, into this self-centered, selfish way of thinking where all that matters is me and what I want. And other people are an interruption at best. When you don't make effort to be at Bible study because you feel too tired or you don't really see the point, what is the mindset that you are reflecting? People don't matter. My presence there doesn't matter. The input that I need doesn't matter or the input that I give doesn't matter. It's of little value. It's not even worth the nap that I'm taking. When you're too busy to be involved in meaningful relationships, when you live in relative isolation and seclusion, what are you valuing? What mindset are you taking on? You're placing a low value on people for whom Christ died. The Christian community is characterized by the op opposite. We elevate the value and significance of people in our lives by the decisions we make and what we pursue and how we pursue them. Fifthly, spiritual fervor. This will be our last one this morning. Spiritual fervor. He says there, do not be slothful, verse 11, in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The Christian life and Christian community is not about legalism and duty. It's not us being able to check the boxes, find out what is required and be able to meet the absolute minimum. The new covenant is not a covenant of a whole lot of laws that we just fulfill. The new covenant is motivated by the powerful working of the Spirit. That's what we saw in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit leads us to fulfill more than the law. The Spirit leads us to go beyond the call of duty. He leads us upward and onward toward the godliness and a pursuit and a passion and a fervor and a zeal which could never be attained under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. That is the very nature of what we see is the New Covenant in Romans chapter 8, the powerful work of the Spirit amongst us. And so Christian community should be characterized by this zeal and fervor for the Lord, a passion, not a legalism. This is the work of the Spirit amongst us. It's the opposite of dead orthodoxy. It's the opposite of, uh, of just doing what is required and dragging our feet. It's the opposite of that. Christian community should fire up our souls, put fire in our bones, and give us zeal to want to live holy for God. Is that what the Christian community does for you? Don't be slothful. Be fervent in the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who motivates this fervency. It's His work. It's the very nature of the Gospel that God sends His Spirit the spirit of adoption into our hearts and this spirit causes us to live lives that are wholly zealous, passionately consumed with Jesus Christ and making much of Him wherever and however and whatever cost. When you amongst other believers, you should burn 
with zeal for Jesus Christ. If that community is accomplishing what it should, you should burn. You should leave church on a Sunday or on a Wednesday after Bible study just passionate to share the gospel, to love that person, to do better, to be a better example at work, to take all the nonsense they're giving you and do it for the glory of Christ. You should think great thoughts of God and maybe it doesn't even last till Friday. But it's okay, Sunday's coming. That's what Christian community should do. Steve Camp sings this song. Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. And with everyone you meet, I'll take them the gospel and share it well. And look around as you hesitate, for another soul just fell. Let's run to the battle. I want to be surrounded by Christians who call me to, to fervency, to great exploits for Jesus Christ. I thank God that He has brought people in our life over the years. You know, before I got saved, I wanted to be an engineer and invent things and make things. And Megan was an accountant and wanted to be businesswoman of the year. <laughs> and I just think what petty goals we had for our life. And God redirected our life on completely different avenues by the people he brought in who modeled biblical principles, who modeled passion and zeal beyond the call of duty and sometimes called us to that. To give up our career for gospel ministry, to sell our house, to cash in our pension, to give away our car, to preach the gospel in closed countries, to adopt handicapped children, to live in crime-riddled areas, to go on short-term mission trips, to love the unlovable and do the impossible. These are the things that didn't come in our own minds. They didn't come from the scriptures. There were biblical principles that other Christians modeled and embodied for us. And they gave us a passion and a zeal. This is what it can look like to live for Jesus Christ wholly and completely. I never want to be part of a Christian community that's not spurring me on to that. As William Carey said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. To the young people, we've got a big group of young adults. I want to challenge you. Are you going to let the fellowship among you descend into mere comfort and ease and career planning? Or are you going to spur one another on for zeal? Are we going to see missionaries and martyrs raised up because as you fellowship together, you inspired one another with what can be done for Jesus Christ? It's not all about missions and full-time ministry. It's about loving that person that's your enemy at work or at home. It's about staying in that marriage that's impossible unless you're zealous for Jesus Christ and go beyond the call of duty. It's about making those sacrifices that blow the world's mind because no one they've ever met has done anything like that, has been like that. It's going beyond the mere law and legalism of duty to passion for Jesus Christ. It's giving it all up, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you can, because it's your privilege. Older people, 
I sense in myself this desire to be comfortable and to take the foot off the pedal and just slide home. We weren't saved for that. We want to blaze a trail of making much of Jesus Christ until it's burned up and our life is over. I'm so glad that, that still I'm surrounded by older men and women that for me model that kind of passion and zeal in their latter years. And I want that. I want that more than just to be comfortable. I want to be a part of a Christian community that's going to show me what that looks like in daily life. Do you want that too? Will you be a part of that?